This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. Uh, this is episode 17 of the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought. I'm your host, Rod Davis. Um, and this week on the podcast, uh, where I'm afraid it is, again, just me for now, I'm going to be looking at the question of, is philanthropy rational? So I suppose the, the first thing before I start breaking this down into pieces and, and trying to work out some answers is to say... Why should anybody care about this question? Uh, which is perfectly fair enough. Um, I hope by now I've convinced you that you should in general care in some way about philanthropy, so I'll leave that one to one side. But as to whether philanthropy is rational or not, I guess the starting point um, is to make a distinction. Philanthropy is at one and the same time two very different things. It's both the individual act of giving uh, by a single person who's decided out of the goodness of their heart or for other motivations to give to another but it's also at a macro level a system of redistribution uh, within our society in the same way that something like taxation is um, to put that more eloquently um, I might quote quickly um, from uh, the volume by Rob Reich uh, Chiara Cordelli and Lucy Bernholtz which is called Philanthropy in Democratic Societies which is a great book if you can get your hands on it um, but in that they make the same point and say uh, quote, uh, philanthropy can refer both to actions and institutions. We can think of philanthropy both as a form of individual giving and as a complex economic and policy structure, as the institutionalised practice of privately funding the production of public benefits, which uses uh, some bigger words to say what I the point I was basically trying to make there. Um, and I guess the thing that is interesting to me about this is the fact that philanthropy at that individual level almost by definition in economic terms isn't rational it's not about making purely objective decisions about maximizing utility it's driven by a whole host of other things many of which we've talked about before on this podcast like uh religion social status um even kind of unconscious biases all of the things around um nudge theory that that can be used to drive more giving um, all of those are the factors that affect how much we give, uh, and they mean that it's sort of a totally irrational activity in many ways. But then that's kind of fine, and maybe you can just accept that. But if you're then looking at things at the macro level, as a policymaker, for instance, and you're trying to work out how philanthropy can be used as a force within society to drive more public good that's probably going to prove to be very annoying because um, it makes philanthropy an enormously difficult beast to harness um, if you're trying to get it to, to sort of meet the needs of society if it's totally rational and just based on the whims of a collective of individuals that's going to prove extremely annoying and I think to my mind there are kind of three responses as a policymaker that you can take uh, the first one is just to accept that that's what philanthropy is and just tailor your expectations accordingly um try and promote it for its own sake but realize that it's always going to be a case of let a thousand flowers bloom and it will go where it will 
The second option is to go totally uh, the other way and to try and force philanthropy to uh, fit your uh, needs and desires as a policymaker. Um, so to try and use legislation and regulation to force philanthropy to focus on specific things that fit more neatly with your own priorities. And the third one um, is to recognise this uh, potential tension and then not really to do anything about it and just get really annoyed, which is actually where I think the majority of policymaking tends to end up, unfortunately. I suppose the the questions that we'll come on to in a minute in the, the second uh, section are, well, what, if anything, can we actually do about this, and should we? Um, and what kind of approaches have people taken in the past or currently um, to making philanthropy more rational? I suppose one interesting question before we move on to that quickly is just to, to throw in an idea, which I've never quite got to the bottom of myself, but I think is worth exploring, in lots of other areas of uh, science, um, such as um, biology or computer science, there's the idea of um, emergent phenomena. Um, so you get this around uh, something like consciousness, which is a hugely um, controversial topic still in neuroscience and philosophy of mind. And some people there have put forward the idea that actually it's only explicable as a phenomenon that uh, kind of emerges out of the complexity of a load of other things that are going on and that actually there's no one point at which you flick a switch and suddenly something's conscious or not and I wonder whether you could argue that the same could be true of philanthropy so actually no it isn't rational at the individual level but at some point in the aggregation of all of those different individual acts of philanthropy you get emergent rationality so at the the macro level actually it makes a lot more sense but I'm not sure I have the evidence to back that up. So anyway, in the next section, I'll come back and look at some approaches people actually have taken to trying to make philanthropy more rational. Okay, so we're back for section two. And uh, as I said before the break, in this section, I'm going to have a quick look at some oh, sorry that's my phone deeply unprofessional uh some approaches that people have taken to making philanthropy uh more rational so i suppose the the first one i'll just uh counter through quickly and we touched on it in terms of the three options i outlined in the first section um is the idea that as a policymaker or as a government you could decide to try and force philanthropy to fit your priorities and needs and to shape it accordingly um and at least at a theoretical level, this has been put forward as an idea. So in, in the volume that I mentioned earlier, Philanthropy and Democratic Societies, um, Chiara Cordelli, who's one of the ed editors, also writes a quite interesting article uh, called uh, Philanthropy and um, Reparative Justice, I think. And she basically argues that actually uh, you should do that for philanthropy and that it should be forced to meet the, the needs of policymakers and governments. Um, and again, just a quote, she says, Philanthropy should be understood foremost as a duty of reparative justice affluent donors should as a matter of moral duty exercise no personal discretion when deciding how to give and to whom indeed they should regard their donations as a way of returning to others what is rightfully theirs which i think is interesting as an argument in political theory i think it's totally impractical as an actual approach to philanthropy in the real world um, I suppose there's a kind of ideological point of view that you might bristle at the idea that you should force donors to uh, to fit in with governmental priorities. 
and also more pragmatically my experience of talking to philanthropists is if you as a government or any sort of uh public official started to tell philanthropists what they could or couldn't give to uh they very quickly would just stop giving so the whole question would become totally moot anyway um so i'm not sure that's a very profitable avenue other approaches have uh, sometimes come out of the the philanthropy world um itself so there have been kind of interesting historical examples where people, for one reason or another, have got frustrated at the irrationality of philanthropy and tried to drive movements um, that have to make it more rational. So in Victorian England, um, for instance, there was an interesting uh, trend towards scientific philanthropy that was led particularly by an organisation called the um, the Charitable Organisation Society. Um, in London, um, famous, most famously led by a man called Charles Locke, um, and their idea was to try and promote the idea that philanthropy should be more scientific, so people should take a more kind of evidence-based approach to it uh, and try and think more about what was being achieved with their giving rather than just giving um, reactively or doing what they felt like. Um, it's a bit more complicated than that in that actually the the specifics of what the charitable organization society was putting forward were very tied in with a quite stringent victorian uh view of poverty and a sort of moralistic um uh distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor so actually really what they were most bothered about was the idea that people were giving to poor people who for who who it was their own fault that they were poor so they were undeserving rather than the kind of traditional deserving poor who had done nothing to find themselves in that situation and also they were extremely uh forthright in their approach and their criticism of others so they made themselves uh really quite unpopular but still they they hung around for quite a while and had quite a few adherents um and actually you know many of their ideas have either stayed on in the philanthropy world or at least we've seen them coming back round again in the form of you know the various attempts to introduce rigor around things like impact measurement um over time i suppose the another way possibly slightly less uh kind of avert than telling people what they have to give to that you might uh, aim to make philanthropy more rational and we see quite a lot of that now is simply by providing them with more data and uh information um about giving and about where need is so uh, you provide data on where the most pressing social and environmental needs are at a local or national level and also data on who is currently working on those and kind of where the the most the strongest pain points are um, i guess the the idea being that you would still allow people at the end of the day to make their own voluntary decisions um, so some people might see all of the data on a local area and see for instance that homelessness was the the biggest problem uh, and that lots of people were already giving to schools and still decide that they wanted to give to, to schools and education and that would kind of be their decision because that's sort of the fundamental crux of philanthropy but you would hope that enough people when faced with the evidence of where need was and where their intervention would be most helpful would shape their philanthropy accordingly without you having to actually go the whole hog and tell them I suppose an interesting side note and something we've talked about quite a few times on this podcast and I've certainly written about a bit is um, 
the effective altruism movement because that kind of combines the the two points that i've been uh, making there around data and around expressing a kind of ideology for how giving should work because effective altruism is very much a movement about using data to try and work out the most effective uh, use of philanthropic money but it is also i think an ideology in that the sort of the specific model of utilitarianism that it chooses to decide what counts as the best form of giving is actually quite values laden and comes from a particular sort of moral philosophy um i think it's a fascinating uh approach and you know very popular certainly amongst sort of tech-minded donors because it lends itself very well to, to that framework but i think it is important to remember that it isn't entirely objective uh in that sense even though it espouses objectivity the framework that it uses to put forward that idea comes with some baggage um so i think that's a quick canter through ways in which um people have tried to to make philanthropy um more rational uh, over time and currently um in the final section what i want to do is try and have a look at what might happen in the future and some thoughts i've got about the ways in which new technology might make it even easier to rationalize philanthropy in the future Hi, so we're back again uh, for the last section um, of this uh, episode of Giving Thought, looking at the question of whether philanthropy is rational. Uh, and in this section, um, I just want to have a bit of a think about the future, as I am uh, want to do. So so I guess this is quite an interesting one in a way, because we've been talking about rationality and, that's, and philanthropy, and that seems to be tied up with the idea that you should use evidence and data. And we are increasingly told nowadays that, you know, things like data is the new oil uh, and all these stats around how 95% of all the world's data has been produced in the last two years and all these kinds of things. So obviously data is already playing a hugely important role in our lives. And as um, you know, things like social media, but also kind of wearable technology and smart objects and the Internet of Things take off over the next few years, there's going to be a even more incredible explosion of data on the ways in which we act and our behaviors and and our preferences and all these sorts of things that are going to drive all kinds of decision making and one would assume is going to have an impact on philanthropy um you know we've talked before on the podcast and i've written a lot about the idea that you could use algorithms in future um to to try and kind of automate some of the uh, the philanthropic decision making and the, the process of giving um and i've said before you know the reason that i think that might actually happen is that there's going to be lots of contexts in which decisions about giving are going to need to be made without human oversight um so again for instance in the internet of things i think there's going to be a lot of machine to machine transactions between smart objects um, who need to pay for their own repair or are selling off spare capacity or these sorts of things and if you want to get some of that money going to charity it's totally impractical for a human being to have oversight of all of it um, partly because it's going to be probably very low value but enormously high volume transactions so the only way that's going to work is if you've got some sort of automated process um and unless you just tried to follow existing models of allowing human beings to make their choices up front and then use those to structure the processes, you're probably going to be crunching data 
to try and determine where the the money from you know the philanthropic money in the, that scenario is going to be going um so that makes the question of kind of rational models for philanthropy much more practical and pressing so one thing i mean obviously we've said effective altruism is currently you know the the number one game in town for that uh and i think you know there is a, a kind of onus on anyone else who thinks that uh data-driven philanthropic decision making is going to be a big deal in the future to kind of come up with a better idea if they have issues with effective altruism uh and you know that's that's sort of the challenge i guess where i think there's something potentially very interesting is um around recording and using and also predicting uh social impact so this is on the side rather than data on needs and um, where where the most pressing needs are that can kind of drive the demand side. Um, you can also look at the supply side of of philanthropy in terms of choosing what the best interventions are to kind of achieve spe- specified goals. Um, and I've written a bit about this, uh, kind of pondering the role that blockchain could play. So I know everybody's talking about blockchain at the moment, and it's very tempting in all scenarios just to suggest that you put a blockchain on it. But but genuinely, one of the interesting use cases, I think, around philanthropy for blockchain is in recording social impacts accurately um, in various ways. Because you know, one thing blockchains are very good at is they can record any kind of assets whether it's tangible intangible financial non-financial and social impact or social value would seem to be a very good one and the benefit of using a blockchain potentially is that you have a huge trustworthy ledger that's also decentralized and distributed so multiple different people and agents could update it Um, once that data's on there assuming that you trust the person who put it on there it's immutable so it's kind of it's guaranteed and can't be changed obviously that does put a big onus on who are the people entering the information on the blockchain in the future so i think you know there's going to be a big role for uh, existing charities and ngos and community groups to kind of take ownership of some of that there's also obviously the possibility in the future that some of that could be automated because some of the relevant information uh, about social impact and outcomes will probably start to come directly from sensors in uh, smart objects um, and you know some of that process can then be be automated i guess where i've taken it to is wondering whether beyond just uh, measuring and recording social impact uh, accurately using blockchain whether actually the technology might allow you to start finding ways to predict what will be uh, effective in terms of delivering social value. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, one of the interesting ideas that's in kind of use cases for blockchain at the moment is around prediction markets. So one of the things about blockchains is you can use them to create digital tokens um, with any kinds of rules you want. And so you can kind of create tokens that incentivize people to accurately predict things. And then you kind of create a market about that. So people say what they think is going to happen, uh, what the outcome of a specific event is going to be. And if they are successful, then they get paid in some of the that, that uh, token. And if they're not, then they lose out. And over time, those who are good at predicting get more and therefore other people start to follow them 
uh, and actually you know people there starts to be a market created where you can see who is good at knowing what's going to happen or what works uh, and actually it creates a kind of market rationality and you could see that happening around social value so a lot of people and organizations are already out there in the philanthropy world who think that they have an approach or an intervention that will solve a certain problem or kind of deliver a particular social outcome what if they were in a in a position to be able to kind of bet on that up front so have a market that says okay who can deliver this clean water outcome and all of the people from huge multinational ngos to small charities to individuals would be able to say pitch for you know their intervention their approach that they thought was going to deliver those outcomes and assuming that those outcomes are they could then be measured um, effectively actually you would see which of those interventions turned out to have the the best possible effect and that person would then win out in terms of uh, winning the most uh, tokens and then over time people would again start to see who was the best at, at knowing what the most effective interventions are so it would kind of be a way of you know solving that question of which is the most effective charity you wouldn't have to go to measures like you know, unhelpful measures like who pays a chief executive the most or kind of who spends most on fundraising it would just be down to who delivers the best outcomes or who is most effective at solving the problem that I want to see solved. Um, and this kind of follows a model that's been put forward by um, the economist Robin Hanson, who talks about this in the context of uh, public policy, um, his idea of futarchy. So you would let people kind of vote on what they think are the most effective policies to deliver governmental aims and kind of create a prediction market around it. As with some of these ideas, do I think this is necessarily going to happen? Well, probably not. Although, again, fascinatingly, it is a thing that is already being tested to some extent. Um, there are people coming up with blockchain-based um, giving platforms in which there is an element of a prediction market. And I saw, for instance, uh, the other day, the white paper of a thing called the Ixo Foundation in, in South Africa, which is worth looking at. And, and there's certainly an element of that that is around incentivizing um, accurate uh, social impact recording and possibly kind of um, creating prediction markets. So, you know, might not take off, but watch this space. Okay, well, that has uh, taken us from uh, theory to looking at the past to looking at now to um, chin stroking about the future. So I think our work here is probably done. Um, so all that remains to say is thanks as ever for listening um, if you've enjoyed what we've been talking about uh, check out the show notes to the show because there'll be links to all kinds of relevant uh, blogs and publications and that kind of thing uh, follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis uh, if you've got any ideas that you want to share with us uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org check out the giving thought section of the CAF website um and i will keep you posted in future on any uh, updates on getting uh, a sidekick for the podcast or getting some interviews sorted out um but for now it just remains to say thanks for listening and bye <laughs>